We're going to try something new. It's always time to learn, right? I've been uh, preaching for almost 50 years, and I've never team preached. But uh, but this morning, uh, Carrie and I are going to share the message. And uh, we want to talk this morning about discerning truth in a post-Christian culture. And this is our first lesson, the Bible, as absolute truth. Now, in a couple of weeks after our baptism, uh, we're going to be talking about inerrancy and infallibility of the Scriptures. But today, we want to look at what the Bible has to say about itself. Uh, and I want to begin by... Uh, Talking about epistemology. Now, uh, Charlotte was uh, proofing my paper and she got a good chuckle out of that. Uh, She said, what is your target audience? And I said, well, I'm aiming for junior high and up. And she just laughed again. (laughs) Um, Epistemology is not a word that you use every day, but I'm going to be careful to define it for you. Epistemology is the study of how we know what we know. And uh, I remember the first time I took philosophy class and I studied epistemology, um, I nearly lost my mind. (laughs) Because you start looking at how do I know what I know, how do I know that I know, how do I know what I know that I know, that I think that might be what I know, I think, and it just went on and on and on and got very confusing. But uh, I'm going to boil it down a little bit for you because um, there, uh, epistemology says, how do we get to the root of our source of knowledge? What can we depend upon to tell us truth? Where are we going to find it? And a few years ago, I would have just had three uh, fundamental or rudimentary ideas, but today in our post-Christian culture, I, I have to add a few points. And before I move any further even from that, let me define post-Christian. Our nation has been a Christian nation. And if you go back to the 50s and 60s, on a Sunday morning, you would find almost everyone in church. Uh, It was just common. Stores were closed. Uh, I grew up in that era. And, uh, you know, you couldn't buy anything. You might find some restaurants uh, that were open for lunch. But uh, Sunday was a day of rest and of worship. And that was kind of the culture of our nation. Um, Already this morning, I've gotten an 800 call uh, on my phone from telemarketers this Sunday morning. Well, what else are you going to be doing on Sunday morning but sitting around waiting for a telemarketer to call? So uh, we, we're, we're in a time when our country has left Christianity behind. And we no longer can call ourselves a Christian nation, and we can no longer call ourselves uh, a Christian culture that uh, even looks to the Bible as a source of knowledge. We have completely 
abandon that for a different kind of assumptions of truth. And so uh, I've given you three ideas that we can talk about. One of them is revelation. One source of knowledge is revelation. Revelation is the idea that from outside of ourselves, someone speaks into the human experience to tell us truth. And in our case, that is divine revelation where God speaks into our lives to tell us truth. It doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from outside of ourselves. And a second one is authoritarianism. It's up on the screen. And this, this is the idea that answers come from experts that have advanced study. So they've gone to school, they have degrees, they have PhDs in different things, or they're lawyers or professors or spiritual leaders like the Pope that says, hey, look, at this is an authority, and so we look to them to speak truth, is what that is looking at. And I don't know if you happen to catch the news report, but mm-hmm. the Pope recently said there is no hell. Uh, he's decided that uh, everybody that is not a Catholic Christian just simply becomes annihilated. And so, uh, according to Catholic doctrine, he speaks ex cathedra, and uh, his word is higher than Scripture. He's the authority. There's no hell any longer. Uh, uh, The one that most affects our culture is rationalism. Uh, The answers come from within ourselves as we use our own logic and our own minds. In other words, we, we kind of look at things and we try to come up with our own ideas about what truth is. And in our culture today, particularly, I could talk about intuition and relativism. Uh, intuition is kind of like, well, I have this sense that this is what's right. Uh, I just have this sense. It's just something inside of me that says this is what I ought to do. Or even uh, more obvious is relativism. Relativism means truth is conditioned upon the circumstances. It changes as the circumstances change. And it changes with individuals and their viewpoint. So that's where the idea, you have your truth and I have my truth. Well, by definition of truth, you can't have two different truths that are opposed. But that's not a problem for people today. Uh, They have no uh, difficulty with that kind of conflict. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We can all be right. The only thing that cannot be true is absolute truth. (laughs) You can't have that because, well, if that's your opinion, you're just wrong. Of the three main points, the Bible claims to have its origin from God, who is a source outside of ourselves. And furthermore... We must realize that every one of these positions, and I want you to get this. This is really, 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 really important. Every one of these positions is faith-based. And what I mean by that is you cannot prove 
any of them. You can't prove rationalism. You can't prove revelation. You can't prove authoritarianism. You cannot prove any of them. Whichever path you go down, you must take by faith. Billy Graham, in an article I read about him back in the 50s, he had a very close associate Mm -hmm. whom he had a lot of trust and confidence in. And this friend of his, who was also a very powerful evangelist, in fact, some people said he was a more forceful and effective evangelist than Billy Graham was. And he began to doubt the scriptures, and he doubted creationism, and he doubted a lot of the historical events in scriptures, and he challenged Graham. And it began to get to, to Billy Graham so deeply that For about three months, he quit preaching altogether. And uh, it troubled him. He began to search and began to search for truth. And one day, he went back to his home in North Carolina, and he went out in the woods, and he laid his Bible on a stump. And he talked to God about it. And the conclusion that he drew was, God, I can't prove this. But I'm going to take you at your word, and I'm going to believe that this book is absolutely true from cover to cover. That's the only thing I can do is trust you. Graham went on to become the great evangelist that we know. And you know, it's amazing. He's probably the only person of that magnitude that that lived his entire life without ever having any kind of scandal or, or genuinely negative things said about him. But his friend went on to become a professor in an Ivy League school and some years down the road admitted to Graham, I don't even know if I believe there is a God. I, he completely lost his faith. And so we eventually, and I want us to realize this this morning, No one who comes to you and says, I know the source of truth. No, they don't. They have chosen a source on the basis of faith. They may not like that, but that's what it is. And you and I have the Bible to base our faith upon. That's what we want to talk about this morning. What does the Bible have to say about itself? So what does the Bible have to say about itself? And point number one is... The scripture actually states that it itself is inspired by God. And we have some scripture passages to kind of look at specifically about that. So we're looking at what does the Bible say about itself. And the first one is 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It says that all scripture is inspired by God. That it's profitable for four things. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. 
Peter goes on, and I think he begins to explain what it means to have the inspiration of the scripture when it says that all scripture is inspired. Peter gives a really good illustration of it in 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, but know this first of all. This is really important for everyone to understand. And remember, we didn't have books at this point, right? The Gutenberg Press hadn't been created. So they were recording down all of the words on either animal skins or papyrus, and they were keeping them as scrolls, and people worked... Full-time, that was their job, just to make sure. And Peter says, know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, we appeal to a bigger authority than people in what they think about what wrote. And it's because of the source of which that the Scriptures actually came from. For no prophecy that was ever written down was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And so we have 66 um, books written over a period of 1,500 years, over 40 different authors. But Peter actually says that as those texts were written, that it was the Spirit of God, this idea that men and, uh, of God actually put out like a sail on a boat, and that the Spirit of God filled those sails, and that they actually penned down God using a human instrument, just like he uses us as like a trumpet or a guitar or a piano or an organ. He uses them as an instrument, but he is the author of all of the texts. He is the author of all the texts. Inspired actually means to be God-breathed. The Holy Spirit moved men to write what God put in their, in their heart and in their mind. And so the text itself, in itself it declares, this is the word of God. Actually, many, many times professing that the words that were written down that we have are actually the inspired word of God. Not only does the Bible claim to be inspired, but it also claims to be timeless and eternal in its nature. Uh, it's, it's a word that because it comes from God himself, it's as timeless as God is. Because he never changes. He, he never uh, comes up with a new idea. He never has a, a change of opinion. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the scripture says in Matthew 5.18, and this is Jesus talking. Mm -hmm. He says, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, let me explain. Jesus did not have the New Testament written in Greek because it wasn't written yet. He was going by the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew and some little bit of it in Aramaic. And in Hebrew, you have these little marks, these little characters. We might uh, use the idea of a comma and a semicolon or a period and a semicolon. Just the, the little uh, markings that uh, kind of help us in our... Uh, pronunciation or characterization of a word. I was kind of frustrated yesterday. I wrote an email and uh, my wonderful autocorrect kept changing my words and it just drove me nuts. 
And uh, sometimes, uh, even though I've proofed it like three times, I send it off, um, it still changes it. And it kept taking away my uh, possessive apostrophe. And uh, it, the sentence didn't read correctly, and so I was, I was pretty frustrated with that. But that's what Jesus was talking about. Those little marks that uh, clarify the meaning of a word. He said, not one of them will pass away until everything that God has said is fulfilled. And uh, Jesus speaks about uh, the, the characteristic of the Scripture we could get into the canon. How do we know that the 39 books of the Old Testament are the, are the right 39 books? But Jesus refers to them from the blood of righteous Abel until uh, the blood of, and I think it was Zerubbabel that was uh, slain on the altar, but I could be wrong about that. Somebody will have to look it up and fix me. Uh, Thomas, or where are you? Yeah. <laughs> Tom's great for that. He'll, he'll straighten me out at the back door before we even leave. But uh, anyway, um, the idea is that Jesus spoke about the Scripture as encompassing the entire Jewish Hebrew Old Testament. The same books we have, making up 39 of them, the Jews had making up 22. Some of them were put together. Uh, and so we have 1st, 2nd Kings and 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and they just had kings. But they had a, a, a collection that was equivalent to ours. And Jesus verified it and authenticated it. In Psalm 119, 160, the scripture says, every one of your, meaning God's, righteous ordinances is everlasting. Every one is everlasting. I am the Lord, I change not. In Isaiah 48, and we covered this just a little while ago, the word of our God stands forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. For you have not been born again of a seed which is perishable but imperishable. 1 Peter one twenty three says, that is through the living and enduring word of God. Friends, the Bible is timeless in its character. It supersedes culture and history. It begins all the way back at the beginning, and it goes all the way until the end of time and beyond. And the Scripture encompasses all of that, and it never changes. We're going to talk down the road a little bit about understanding the Scripture in its cultural context. But for the moment, let's just focus on the reality that the principles of God, the moral absolutes of God, the truth of God, the history contained in Scripture remain the same for all time. 
that's actually a phenomenal truth. Even the fact that um, it has gotten passed along from generation to generation for thousands of years with very little deviation. I mean, I, I, base, I can't even do that in my family, much less from generation to generation to generation. And so point number three, the scriptures actually say in, in, the, in, the, in the text itself that these are absolute truths, that they are truths that never change, that they never change color, that they never fade away, that we never take them and put them on a shelf, that they never get dusty, that they're new every morning. And so some of the verses that we look at about the fact that these are absolute truths, um, Jesus actually, in his high priestly prayer, right before his arrest and then the passion of his suffering, death, and resurrection, he was praying to the Father, an incredible prayer in John chapter 17, and he asked God, he said, God, I want you, God, our Father, please sanctify them in the truth. And in that prayer, he then says, your word is the truth. So if we were wondering what it was, we understand that God's word is the truth. And we already know, too, that he's the one who wrote it. So we have a book that's actually based upon the truth. Again, in Psalm 119, phenomenal uh, chapter, longest chapter in the Bible, right? So much about the word of God in Psalm 119. It says this, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. They are unbreakable. There's a lot of things in this world that break. There's a lot of things. Every time we buy something, like a little toy or whatever, actually, it makes me wonder. I thought about this. This is sad. If I could fill up my entire house with Happy Meal toys or not. You know, like how many Happy Meal toys have actually been purchased and thrown, and they're now in a dump somewhere, right? But they, so these toys, we get them, and then they, our kids get them, and they play with them, and then they end up breaking. You know, something breaks, and it's like, Mom, Mom, help me. But these never change. One time I was on a bike ride with my son. We were out. It was really late, and he was pretty young. And we were on a bike ride, and the chain fell off, and it was really dark out, you know. And um, Aiden looked at me, and he's like, we need mom. And I was like, I was like, what? She's like, she fixes stuff. And I'm like, oh, I get it. So you don't think that I fix stuff. That's what. So things need to be fixed in this world, but the word of God does not need to be fixed. It actually is the fix or. Not always in the ways that we like it, but the reality of it is, is it doesn't rust, it doesn't grow old, it doesn't deteriorate, it doesn't change color. It never loses its, its uh, brilliance and shine. We don't have to take it to Bantora, Pandora and have someone use a machine to, to make its appeal brighter. It's, it remains the same always. Um, Every one of your righteous ordinances is from everlasting. And then, of course, I love this one because this is our um, Awana verse. And uh, approved workmen are not ashamed. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling what we believe and what the scripture says of itself, the word of truth. And then the last thing I was thinking of, because we just came through the passion, is... I'm always fascinated by this about Pontius Pilate. 
and the reality of what he went through. Because apparently, the way, that, the way that the scriptures are written, he did not have an easy time the day that he actually condemned Jesus to be beaten and then crucified. And at one point, when he asked him, are you a king or are you not a king? And he's like, Jesus said, for this reason, I have come into the world. For what reason? To bear witness to the truth. And all who are of the truth, hear my voice. All who are of the truths of his word, hear my voice. And then, think, speaking of moral relativism, Pontius Pilate, who, who would have known that day that he was going to have his words inscribed in eternal scripture? What is truth? The question that each of us should be asking, right? Which is part of the reason what we're doing the series for. What is truth? I had this passing vision fleet through my mind as Carrie was telling the bicycle chain story. <laughs> when the radar systems go down, I can hear a pilot saying, where's your wife? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. We need someone to fix it. <laughs> we need help here. <laughs> you know, not only is the Bible inspired, not only is it timeless, in its uh, truthfulness, not only is it absolute truth, but the Bible exposes our motives and gives light to our path. You know, Jesus said, if if you want if you're willing to follow me and you and you want my will with all of your heart you will know the teaching whether it's true or not yes. and if you want to know whether what you're thinking or what you're wanting is actually the the right thing the true thing the scripture says the Bible will get in there the word of God, not the letters on the page, but the living, dynamic voice of the Holy Spirit taking those words and applying them to your situation and exposing your motivation. And then shedding light on your path so that you are making the right choices. And so Hebrews tells us in 4.12, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, like a two-edged sword, can dissect into your heart and separate your motivation and expose what you're really after if you want to know. Now, if you don't want to know, it's not going to happen. You know, you can read the Bible every day for the next year, and if you really don't want to know what God is telling you, you may as well read Time Magazine. It's not going to help you. But if you're hungry for the voice of God, if you want to know the truth, 
and you're willing to let him shape you and mold you, his word will discern your thoughts and intentions and, and sort them out for you. According to Psalm 119, 130, the under, unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I went to Call Falls College after my first year. My very first year I went to a uh, Southern Baptist University on the east coast of Florida. And I got tired of uh, studying demythologizing the New Testament, which means figuring out where the myths are and getting down to the truth. And I got tired of the documentary hypotheses in the Old Testament, uh, who wrote what and why and, and when and how did it get uh, amalgamated together and all of that kind of stuff. And, and I found myself spending almost as much time outside of class trying to find the truth as I spent in class learning the error. And so uh, Rowena and I married that summer and we moved to North Georgia to Toccoa Falls College. And every day when I walked to class in the, uh, one of the original buildings, which uh, at, at that point in time had been turned into uh, a women's dorm, but it used to be the auditorium, and there was engraved in the stone above the headpiece and the pillars these words, The entrance of thy word, O God, gives light. Amen. The entrance of thy word gives light. Right out of Psalm 119-130. And the scripture illumines things. It brings light to our paths. Um, I sometimes now find when I get up, uh, have to get up in the middle of the night, I don't uh, have such great balance. You know, it takes three things to stay upright. It takes your inner ear to tell you which side is up. It takes your eyes uh, to orient you to the environment, and it takes the uh, receptors in your feet and toes to tell you where the pressure points are so you know if your feet are flat on the ground or you're falling over. And you can get by with two of those. But if your feet aren't working and your eyes aren't working, you're kind of in trouble. So... Uh, I have a little flashlight I keep by the bed now. <laughs> and when I get up, I turn the flashlight on so I can see where I'm going. That way I don't run into the bed. Ran into it the other day and really bruised my leg. I thought, that's enough of that. That's what the scripture does. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the nature of human beings. But, we have the Word of God to illuminate and make sense of our environment. It gives light. Finally, Psalm 119.105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the Bible is inspired. It is timeless and eternal. It is absolute truth. It exposes motives and lights our path. Now, 
uh, you have witnessed a miracle this morning. I just want you to know that. Not only, not only is it the first time that either of us have ever team preached, but the two longest winded guys in this church have managed to finish 10 minutes early. That, that, that is just absolutely remarkable. So guess what? I can't let you go now. We've got just a couple of minutes for maybe questions and answers. Did something pop into your mind as we were going through these passages that you'd like to ask? I'll let Carrie answer them. <laughs> Anyone? Oh, you all got it. Wow. I'm impressed. Okay, well, in two weeks, next week, we're going to have a baptismal service. And uh, that's going to be an exciting time. We're going to ask those who are going to be baptized to share a, a little word of testimony of how they came to know Jesus. And I'm going to talk about uh, what baptism really means. And then in two weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to look at some words that are being uh, bandied about today with um, a lot of questions surrounding them. We're going to talk about inerrancy mm -hmm. of the Scripture. We're going to talk about the infallibility of Scripture. And another mouthful, verbal plenary inspiration, which we will explain in detail so you won't be mystified when we finish. So uh, praise the Lord for his eternal word. Amen. Let's pray together. Carrie, would you lead us, please? Sure. Lord, I'm reminded of, um, actually, you, you wrote this in your truth. And Jesus actually reminded the people while he was on earth by repeating it. It's amazing how many times he just, he didn't even always create new inspiration, but he was using the, that which you actually had previously wrote. And he said this, that the time is coming and was now in existence when all people would be taught by you. And it was a promise. It's a reminder, actually. I'm reminded in that promise of the original days when Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and they would meet with you in the cool of the day and seemingly have a very deep and beautiful relationship. It was a communication relationship both in both directions. And Lord, uh, we're looking as children of God, as people created in your image, to have an understanding of truth. And we want to thank you today for taking the time to use human beings as fallible as we are to write down an inspired text that is timeless and eternal. Truth for us to understand that never loses its appeal, even though sometimes it's painful and frequently leads to some things being killed off so that other things might grow. It illuminates our motives, the thoughts and intentions of our heart, and helps us to understand you 
our creation, and not only that, but also ourselves. We want to take the time to thank you for your written word that actually speaks primarily as well of the living word that was sent into the world. He sums everything up. It's a magnus opus, and he, he really is the crescendo of it all. But when you put it all together, it's amazing in its scope. And the impacts, not only worldwide and through history, but the impacts individually in each of our lives, if we were to stand up and give testimony, have been absolutely phenomenal. And we give you thanks this morning. And Lord, if there's someone yet that hasn't come to this realization, we pray that you would help them to wrestle with the truth of your word until that time when they bow the knee to you and recognize you as who you are, the Lord of the universe, our Elohim and creator. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.